Well, today I'll focus on our gospel passage. We've had this here, pretty much the same passage, maybe not in Mark, or maybe not in in Mark, but in another gospel a, a few weeks ago, I remember, maybe two months ago or so. And I just spoke about the strong man metaphor that Jesus used. Today I'll, I'll speak about something else. Probably a very kind of evident question that people ask is, what does Jesus mean about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and never being forgiven? Okay, And it's a, it's a, that's a good question, very good question. So generally how this is understood in our tradition is that the, the Holy Spirit... Uh, well, first of all, let's just say blasphemy is the worst sin that a human being can ever commit. Okay, that I th- I, blasphemy and sacrilege. I'm not sure. I think they're they're both up. They're definitely both up there. And I think blasphemy is even worse than sacrilege, or one or the other. But it's up there. Okay, so we're talking about a bad sin. But Jesus does say all all manner of blasphemies will be forgiven, except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is he talking about here? It's important to know that there is no sin that God cannot forgive. Okay, so that's a real fundamental truth. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. There's not like this particular sin that you can forgive and you've crossed this line and God's going to say, no, (laughs) Jesus didn't die for that sin. He died for all the other ones but that one. So as long as you're repentant, there is forgiveness for sin. And so that's the key, right? Repentance, I'm sorry, forgiveness is, it depends on repentance, okay? So, the the whole idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is that it's impenitence, is that God's grace is reaching out to you, drawing you to repentance, but you're resisting it, you're resisting it, you're resisting it. Okay? And uh, so that's real bad. Okay, so God in his mercy does actually want to forgive you, but it's on your part that you're not cooperating with that grace of conversion and you're actively resisting it. So this is, um, you know, we taught in our, again, in our tradition, we use the phrase final impenitence. And uh, there can come this, this point where, you know, God comes and knocks on the heart of a person over and over and over and over, and the person keeps rejecting, keeps rejecting, keeps rejecting. And they're going to put themselves in a really bad place. They're going to, they're going to harden their heart so intensely that they've completely walled off God. And God's not allowed into their heart. Okay. That it is, it is possible given human freedom. But we see that the lack of forgiveness comes on the part really of the human heart, not on the part of God not willing to forgive sin. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't operate independently from the Father and the Son. Okay. So, so when we talk about in scripture, sometimes it looks like the Father's doing something and the Son's not, or the Holy Spirit's doing something. That's not really ever the case. It's a manner of speaking. And what that does is an expression of the, the actual inner relations of the persons of the Holy Trinity. Okay? So the Holy Trinity within the mystery, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit within the mystery of the Holy Trinity, okay, often denotes the love of God. Okay, because you have the Father and the Son and the love that they share, the bond that they share is the person of the Holy Spirit. So in any event, the Holy Spirit is oftentimes the, uh, the, it's used to, to symbolize and to represent God's love in the world. And so here's God giving of himself and loving us, loving us, loving us, and here we are on our part saying, no, 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 no. And that's that's what the whole final impenitence and the idea of the sin against the Holy Spirit that won't be forgiven. Um, that's how it's been interpreted, and I find that to be a pretty pretty reasonable 
way of looking at the text. But kind of a little further here in our in my homily and some more practical application for us. I often think to myself, I mean, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, in this case it talks about the scribes, they come off looking so bad in the gospel. And I, I have to ask myself over and over and over again, what is with these guys? What happened to them? What happened to them that they're in such a bad place? They were such religious men, but yet at the same time, they were so off kilter. They were so off kilter that the Son of God himself was in their midst. He's working miracles. He's doing everything that should be sufficient for them to know God has visited them. And yet they were still resistant to him. What's going on? How could they have such hard hearts and be so impenitent and be so resistant against the Holy Spirit as to actually call the activity of the Holy Spirit Satan? They said, oh, he's working miracles by the, by the power of the devil. You know, how could they be so blind and so hard heart? hard-hearted, and as I think I've said before, the gospel writers certainly are, are not including all these stories in the gospel for us to be like, well, what's wrong with them? It's really meant to, to be for us to question ourselves. We really have to say, here we are, we're religious people, just like these people were. And we've got to be, we're here we are, we're listening to the gospel, and uh, we've really got to examine ourselves and be very, very careful that we don't fall into the same mistakes that these guys fell into. What What is it, though, that made them so um, far off and far away from God's grace? And it's pride. It's pride. This is the, this is the thing, is we cannot be prideful. Um, one of the things that you can... Pride has so many dimensions to this, this vice that, that you know, we need to be aware of. But if we notice, I'll just draw our attention to one aspect. It's very interesting. It says, the scribes said of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he drives out demons. They didn't say to Jesus, you are possessed of Beelzebul, and by the devil, you drive out. You notice that? They're talking amongst themselves. All right, they're not talking to Jesus, they're talking about him. All right? And so often we, especially in our social media world today, we're in danger of doing the exact same thing. We get in a silo. We get our in our own little echo chamber and we just talk to people who agree with us. And we we reinforce each other's vices. <laughs> it's not you know, if you have a criticism of someone, you got to talk to the person, all right? But that takes humility, you know? And so often we deceive ourselves by saying, oh, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Oh, yeah, but then you go and you badmouth them for 55 minutes on the phone with your with your friend or something, you know? Like, that's not humility. That's not really actually loving the person or caring about them and not wanting to hurt their feelings, <laughs> okay? That, you know, this is a, this is ego, this is pride. And the social media stuff, it's, this is, it's the worst ever now. It's becoming compounded. Do you know that Google and Facebook, the amount of data, if you have an iPhone or an Android platform, they know everything about you. They have a personal file on you. They know where you go. They know what products you buy. They know every single website that you click on. And they feed you news and things 
that are just according to your personality profile so that you become locked in a complete echo chamber and you only hear things that confirm your own biases and prejudices <laughs> and puff yourself up and and put you in little boxes and cages along with people who are just as neurotic and have got the same problems that you've got. You know? And that's why it's so important to do what the Second Vatican Council has done and has really focused and talked about dialogue. So the people that we disagree with and that we don't understand, we talk with them. Okay? It takes humility to really listen, to try to understand someone that you're that you have a disagreement with, whether that disagreement is philosophical or whether that disagreement is personal, whatever it might be. Uh, so so important. And so now what does Jesus do then in response to the to the scribes? It says Summoning them, he began to speak to them. <laughs> so Jesus had the courage to actually talk to the people who hated his guts, his, all his critics. And here he is, he's able to like confront them. So I think one of the paths, at least, to humility, and so that we don't avoid the pride and that hardness of heart in this terrible place that the scribes found themselves in, where they're actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit and beyond the forgiveness of God, is we just we have to get out of our echo chambers and we have to have the courage to communicate with people and to be in contact with people who are different than us, who don't necessarily you know agree with us, and. Um, you know, so, so important, so, so important. So let's pray, my brothers and sisters. And I think, you know, we, we as Catholics, I would say, I just was listening to something recently where uh, it was about in the 1920s. Margaret Sanger, does anybody know who Margaret Sanger is? Okay, started Planned Parenthood, and this is back in the era where eugenics was really big. It was nasty. Eugenics was just this horrible, horrible movement in America, and abortion really started, it was part of a, it was really a, a function of the eugenics movement. Um, you know, eliminate all those scummy city people and the black people and all of that kind of stuff. That's what abortion, you know, what, what, that was the origin of, of all this um, Planned Parenthood and abortion and whatnot. In any event, it's, this thing is good and bad, is that Margaret Sanger was going to go, this, and she was going to give this big talk, and this was in New York City, and the Catholic bishops and clergy in New York City had so much power that they were able to influence the police to shut down her talk. Okay, that's how much influence they had. This is very interesting to think about that. Uh, it's good in one, way, in one sense, but in another sense, it shows you how much kind of like power that the Catholic clergy had, all right, even in the 20th century, in America, which is a non-Catholic country, for crying out loud. And uh, so often, a lot of like the sex abuse scandal and all of this kind of stuff, it was swept under the carpet because the clergy had a relationship with those the powers that be. And uh, so often in history, we Catholics have been humbled over and over and over and over and over and over again. So, you know, with all the bad things that have been happening to us, especially in relation to the, the negative media that we get because of the sex abuse scandal, I think there's a silver lining to this, to the dark cloud, you know, and that is that, that God in His mercy keeps us humble, you know. We, it's gonna be, it's pretty hard to like think greatly of yourself when your critics are constantly haranguing you. But we need to listen to them. You know, we need to listen and not be defensive. And and that's really insurance for us that we remain humble that we don't fall into the 
the trap that the scribes fell into where we just are in an echo chamber and we're always right <laughs> and our enemies that we don't talk to are always wrong, you know. So we, we thank God for the times in our life that we've been humbled. If we can almost just maybe one little takeaway is think of a time in your life that something, you know, really happened to you that humbled you. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. And let's think of, you know, opportunities that we have where we can try to reach across and communicate and dialogue and get out of our comfort zones and our and our echo chambers and our silos and uh, thereby we'll be, we'll avoid that that real nasty pride and the hardness of heart that's going to uh, send us down the wrong path